our subject for today, which happens to close out this sermon series that we've been going through. But before we get into today's topic, I wanted just to briefly review where we've been. I counted up all the sermons, and this is the 11th in this series. Uh, certainly there's more that we could learn and more that we can talk about, but we're going to move on to some new things, and we'll come back to some of these topics and other things that we didn't address at a later day. So, our sermon series has been The Last Days, and each week we've discovered something new. The first week we asked, are we there yet? Why hasn't the Lord come back yet? We went through a history of people who've tried to make predictions about when Jesus will return, each of them failing, and so we stressed the need to be balanced in our approach to waiting for the Lord. Um, we're not supposed to get ourselves so hyped up all the time that we're always looking for the Lord to return today, tomorrow, the next day, so that we get discouraged when He doesn't return and, and give up hope. But at the same time, we're not supposed to put the Lord's return off too far into the future. And then the next week, we talked about watching and waiting, because that's really what Matthew 24 and 25 is about. It's not so much about giving us a specific date when the Lord will return, as much as helping us to be aware of our need to watch. And what does it mean to watch? What do we do while we wait? We had four words. Watchfulness was prayerfulness. Yeah, good one, Marcy. We were to be in an attitude of prayer. We're to be an attitude of carefulness in how we treat one another. Um, usefulness, use our talents, we discovered, for God. And then we made up a word, the word sharefulness, based on a parable in Matthew 25, manifesting true love for one another uh, by, by meeting the immediate needs of people. The following week, we talked about the judgment, how a lot of people are afraid of the judgment, but as Christians, if you've given your life to Jesus, Judgment means good news. Jesus is going to make things right. He's going to sell the score. And we are safe and saved in him. We talked also about the 144,000, this symbolic number of those who are alive when the Lord returns. And we learned that these are the people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And anybody can be a part of this group if they give their life to Christ. Uh, they're not super saints because they are better than everybody else. Their robes are white, as we saw in Revelation 14, because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The 144, as we saw, receive two seals, the seal of the gospel. Any of us are sealed, according to the Apostle Paul, when we receive the gospel. And then the eschatological, or the end time seal, happens in the last days for the 144,000, and it's a seal of protection. We also talked about the last generation. Um, basically, we saw that our God is good. Uh, and we can be perfect at every stage of our development. Christ on the cross accomplished all things for us. And anybody um, can give their life to him. And we have an extraordinary Savior. We talked also about the wine of Babylon. Basically, the wine of Babylon mentioned in Revelation 14, we saw was two things. It was basically sin and unfaithfulness to God and um, false teachings, etc. And then the wine of Babylon was also the consequences from the rebellion against God. But we saw in that study that anybody who wants to take the wine of the new covenant 
Anybody who wants to receive the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus doesn't have to drink the wrath or the wine of the wrath of the fornication. Again, God's mercy is extended uh, to anybody who wants to receive it. We talked about the remnant in two parts. Basically, we looked at the 144,000 and we distilled their essential characteristic to one word, and it started with a W. Does anybody remember what that W word was? It was the word willingness. The 144,000 have a willingness. They follow the Lamb wherever He wants them to go. Uh, openness to the working of the Holy Spirit. We talked also about the counterfeits. Satan has a counterfeit trinity. He's got a counterfeit message, counterfeit three angels message. He's got counterfeit revivals, a counterfeit seal, a counterfeit second coming even. And because of those things, we need to be in the Word. We need to be studying and preparing ourselves so that we're not caught off guard by any of these counterfeits. Recently, we talked about the Sabbath in the last days, how it's there embedded in the first angel's message. And the Sabbath is a call for us to rest in God's completed work. His creation, His redemption, His recreation, His salvation. We can't add anything to the work of Christ, and so we simply rest in it. And every week, the Sabbath is a reminder that we're not saved by our own works, we're saved by the works of Jesus. Finally, last week, we talked about the remnant part two, and we saw that God has wonderful people in all churches, in all parts of the world, but in these last days in particular, he has a special message that the world needs to hear. And it's the message of the return of Jesus. It's the message of the three angels. Uh, and we believe that we've been raised up to proclaim this special message. And anybody is welcome to be a part of this proclamation. And God is wanting to gather together a faithful group of people in these last days who will lovingly keep the commandments of God. And they have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Okay. That's a little bit of where we've been. Let's focus in now on where we're going. As you can tell by the sermon title, it, I entitled it, How to Be Prepared. And we've dealt with this a little bit already, but when you talk about the end time and being prepared, a lot of people in our society will automatically think about, what do I have to buy at the store to stock in my pantry, right? And there's a movement uh, we call the Prepper Movement. Um, and in a certain sense, I think there's a lot of wisdom in thinking ahead. I mean, here in California, how many fires have we had? How many earthquakes have we had? How many disasters have we had? And just on a strictly disaster preparedness level, it makes sense to think ahead and plan ahead. Amen? If we were to to um, lose power, what would you do? If all of a sudden we had lost access to the grocery stores, could you get along for a little while? Uh, these are some things to think about. The sermon's actually not about that today. Um, you, this is a study um, that you can do on your own or we could talk about it at a future time. So I, I think it makes sense at a certain level to think ahead in these terms, but we have to realize that ultimately to be prepared for the final days of Earth's history, the most important part is our spiritual preparation. 
Um, we don't want to prepare so much by, by uh, digging a bunker and by having years worth of food that we put our trust in our physical preparation such that it takes our trust away from our spiritual connection. Not that, not that those things are, are bad things or, or whatever, but what if we've prepared and then we are not able to access the things that we've stored up? What if a, an earthquake destroys our pantry and we don't have it? Um, what if, as has been told to us in the last days, people are going to be stealing and looting and, and taking the things that have been stored up? Um, we may not have access, but we can always know that we'll have access to our Father in Heaven who wants to protect us and preserve us and help us through these last days. So I'm going to be talking today about the spiritual aspect of preparedness. But I want to start with a quote from the book Great Controversy. Look at it here on the screen. None but those who have fortified the what? The mind with what? The truths of what? The Bible will stand through the last conflict. So the most important preparedness is our spiritual preparedness. Not to say that we shouldn't think about the physical aspect as well. But first and foremost, we've got to be fortified. A lot of people eat fortified cereal, right? <laughs> our minds need to be fortified with the nutrients of God's Word the truths of the Bible, so that they can stand through the last great conflict. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I obey God rather than men? In other words, am I really willing to follow the Lamb wherever He'll lead? Willingness. Do I have that willingness? The decisive hour is even now at hand. Our feet are, are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable Word? Are we prepared to stand firm in defense of the commandments of God? of the faith of Jesus. Do we have that willingness? Have we spent our time fortifying our hearts and minds and lives in God's Word? It's a good question to ask ourselves because we don't just come to church so that we can hope to fortify ourselves once a week. We need daily fortification in God's Word. Amen? I love these prayer focuses that, that uh, Denise and, and our prayer team and elders have been um, presenting, because this is a way to meditate on seven scriptures every single day and really think about them. And you know, this last week as I was giving it a try, I noticed when you speak these verses out loud, you think about them differently than you do if it's just in your mind. And maybe you want to do it in private because, you know, wait till you're in a private location or whatever because you're embarrassed to talk out loud like that. That's okay. But do it. We need to be fortifying our lives with God's Word. As we think about being prepared for the return of Jesus, I want to turn to Revelation to look at one of the places where the return of Christ is pictured. We want to fortify ourselves through this study today, and we'll talk more about how to be spiritually prepared for the return of Christ. So go to Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to look there, starting in verse 14. Revelation 14, 14.
Are you there? All right. Revelation 14, 14. We've talked about the three angels' messages in this chapter. We've talked about the 144,000 in this chapter. Let's talk about the return of Jesus in this chapter. Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, what kind of cloud? A white cloud. Only place in Revelation a white cloud is mentioned. And on the cloud sat who? One like the Son of Man. Now, if you've been reading your Bible, fortifying your mind with the truths of the Bible, you'll remember that Jesus loved to call himself what? Son of Man, that was his favorite nickname for himself. Favorite title that he liked to give himself, the Son of Man. But he didn't just make it up. It actually came from earlier in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. One like the Son of Man, seated on a cloud, came to the Ancient of Days. It's not a picture of the second coming in that passage. It's actually a picture of judgment. Um, but there we see a picture of Christ in heaven on a cloud. And here in Revelation 14, we see Jesus coming on a cloud. This time not for judgment. This time it's for his return. But actually we see that, that there is natural judgment that occurs when Jesus returns. Now it says on his head is what? A golden crown. Golden crown. This is the Greek word stephanos. It's the, it's the laurel wreath type of a crown, but it's made out of gold. So this is the crown of victory, of sovereignty. Uh, it's not the diadem of royalty. Jesus is coming back as a victorious ruler, riding on a cloud, and in his hand is a what? A sickle. How is the sickle described? It's sharp. So he's coming back for harvest, and he's going to get the job done, and he's going to do it right because the sickle is sharp, and it's ready for action. There's a finality to what's about to happen. It's going to happen. Verse 15, and another angel came out of where? The temple, Greek word naos, uh, which in this context refers either to the holy place or to the most holy place. An angel is coming right there from the throne room of God. And he cries out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is what? is ripe. Have you heard those words before? Heard them before? Yeah, Jesus said to his disciples, look, the fields are white. They're ripe with harvest. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers. Multiple times, Jesus had parables about a sower who went out and sowed his seed. And then there was a harvest later on. A dividing of the weeds and the, and the grain and so forth. Jesus loved to use agricultural illustrations and he talked in, in terms of harvest when it came to his return. There are times in the Old Testament where the, the harvest being ripe was a scene of judgment, but in this case, this is not a scene of punishment. This is a scene of God, Jesus coming back to gather his people at the return of Christ. The harvest is ripe. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Do you want to be a part of that harvest? Amen. I want to be reaped in this first harvest, because there are two harvests. There's a harvest of grain, 
And then in verse 17 and onward, it's a harvest of grapes. You've heard the phrase, the grapes of wrath. Okay, it comes from this passage. Um, verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had what? A sharp sickle. Again, he's coming out here to do a decisive work um, in a harvest. Verse 18, then another angel came out from where? The altar. This is interesting. And, and what kind of power did he have? Power over fire. Interesting description. Angel comes out, not from the temple this time, specifically. He comes out specifically from the altar, and he's got power over what? Fire. <laughs> That's his superpower. Power over fire. So what's going on there? And he cried out with a loud voice, loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. You know, as we've mentioned earlier, if you don't understand an image or a symbol in Revelation, read elsewhere in the book, read elsewhere in the passage, read elsewhere in the Bible, and chances are you'll find something that will help you. Go real quickly to Revelation chapter 8. We want to figure out this angel and the altar and the power over the fire. We want to know more what that's all about. Revelation 8, look at verses 3 through 5. Revelation 8, verse 3. Then another angel having a golden what? Censer came and stood at where? The altar. Okay. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon what? The golden altar, which is before the throne. So where's the angel at the beginning of verse 3? He's at the altar. Um, and then he was going to go to where? The golden altar. So apparently he's at a different altar other than the golden altar. So there are two altars that are in the sanctuary. So the golden altar is the one with incense. So he must have been probably out at the altar of sacrifice. And you'll see why that is interesting uh, in just a moment. So he's there, and what does he have in his hand again? A censer. He's got a container that has incense in it. Uh, and with the incense is fire. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with what? Fire from where? From the altar. And he threw it where? To the earth. Does it kind of sound like he's got power over fire? A little bit. He's there at the altar. He's got power over fire. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Very interesting here. He comes from the altar, probably of sacrifice, goes to the altar of incense, gets fire. And then it says also in verse 4, the incense represents something. What does it represent? the prayers of the saints. Now, now just, you're right, what are the saints praying for? You see where we're going here? Go to Revelation 6. Revelation chapter 6. 
Because there's at least a specific group of saints that have a specific prayer. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, oh, who? The souls of those who had been slain from the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, some people take this and they picture that there are a whole bunch of people that are trapped underneath a physical altar. Or these are disembodied souls that are trapped underneath this altar. Uh, as we know and as we've discussed previously, the Bible uses the word soul as a living being. But in this case, it's used metaphorically. These people have died. They've given up their life for Jesus. And symbolically, they're waiting the justice and judgment of God. These are people who made a stand for Jesus, made a stand for God, and they were killed because of it. Martyrs, exactly. They are crying out for justice. Sometimes we have a, 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 tr a bit of trouble with understanding the justice of God, but mostly uh, we have lived very sheltered lives here in America. But people who have come from countries where there is genocide or countries where there is vicious persecution, they can understand better the cries in the Bible for God to be the judge, God to be the one to bring justice and vengeance and, and bring justice on those who have oppressed them. Here are people who've been killed for Jesus and symbolically their blood is crying out like the blood of, of Abel, righteous Abel, metaphorically was calling out for justice in Genesis. Here they are under the altar. And what are they saying? Verse 10, they cried out in a loud voice saying what? How long, O Lord? You know, when I was single, before I met my wonderful wife, I had something in common with these martyrs. Not that I had been killed, but I also called out, How long, Lord? How long? <laughs> and he answered that prayer. The martyrs, however, are still waiting for their answer. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given each of them, and it was saying to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So there are people who died, and God remembers that there is injustice that needs to be taken care of. And there's an angel that has been to that altar and to the other altar and taken the prayers of the saints and taken the fire. And that angel, going back now to Revelation 14, that's the angel, or that's the location, if not the exact angel, who now is going forth to bring justice and to answer the prayers of those saints who died for the testimony of Jesus. Are you getting the picture here? How long that prayer is now being answered and God is saying, don't wait any longer. Now's the time. I'm going to make all things right. I'm going to make all things right. So there in Revelation 14, we see this call. Verse 18. And then verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth. And where does he put the vine? 
He threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. These are not gathered up to be taken to heaven. These are gathered up for judgment, for justice. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And we say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? First of all, what, when you eat a grape, what comes out of a grape? When you, juice. But now it's saying that blood comes out. So obviously we're dealing with symbols here. Um, when you look, in fact, let's, let's look at it right now. Let's go back to the book of Joel. Keep your finger or a bookmark in Revelation. Go back to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, Daniel, and then Hosea, and then Joel. Joel chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 12 through 16. Okay, we'll see where this image comes from in Revelation. Joel 12, Joel 3, verse 12. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of who? Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. This is a place of judgment, a place of justice. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is what? Is ripe. This time it's ripe for destruction. Come down, for the winepress is what? Is full. The winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Not that their wickedness is really good but the wickedness is a lot, immense. And then verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Not that they're there to decide, but their decision has already been made. But in these last days, we have multitudes of people who are in the valley of spiritual decision, and their choice hasn't been made yet. And we exist as a church to help people make a choice on the side of the Lord. That health ministry on June 23 that Anita talked to you about on the health team, that's existing to help be a way to make friends with people so they not only can have better health, but so that they can make a decision for the Lord. Everything we do is geared around those things. Our school that we support is to help the multitudes of kids in the Valley of Decision to make a decision to follow the Lord. So here we see a picture of people who've already made their choice. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Verse 15, the sun and moon will go dark and the stars will diminish in their brightness. Then the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens will shake and the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Here Joel is looking ahead in this prophetic glimpse at a day of justice and judgment that was to take place outside of Jerusalem in the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is the valley that, that is between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. It has different names. Um, it's also been called the Valley of Decision. Um, and if you were to go there today, um, it would have different names even today. But what we see here is this symbol of the grapes and of the wine press and of God's justice being called out. So let's go back to Revelation 14. 
It's interesting when you start to see where these passages in Scripture are taken from. So the grapes are gathered, they're on the wine press, and the wine press is trampled outside the city, and then blood comes out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles. This is a very uh, deep uh, flood of blood, as it were. And sometimes, have you ever been grossed out by some of these things? You're like, that is disgusting. Okay, the Bible, just like you and me, utilizes the literary tool of hyperbole. Do you know what hyperbole means? Looks like hyperbole when you spell it, but it's pronounced hyperbole. It's, it's the art of overstatement to make a point. We would call it exaggeration. Um, the images here are over the top because God is trying to illustrate uh, an important point. It's like if your kid has trouble running out into the street and you say to him, if you do that again, you are going to get flattened uh, like a bug on the pavement, right? They really wouldn't get flattened exactly like a bug. They could get totally flattened. But you're, you're stating it a little bit more because you're trying to illustrate a point so that your kids will get the idea and then say, okay, I'm not going to do that, right? So here we're, we're using some very graphic images because God doesn't want anybody to have to suffer this. The 1600, probably, this is multiplies multiples of four. Four in, the, in Revelation and other places is symbolic of the whole earth. So we're looking at a, a number that's just saying, this is a very big judgment scene, and it's going to encompass the whole earth. Uh, very, very big. But I want you to notice something interesting here. Where does this judgment take place? Say it again, Ed outside the city. We're talking here about Jerusalem. Who else was punished outside the city? Jesus. Hebrews 13 verse 12 says he was crucified outside the city. That's the place where people who were criminals and people who were being cut off from the people were judged, where they were executed, where they were punished. punished. Jesus was killed outside the city. The people here who reject God will be punished outside the city, symbolically speaking. Here, in my mind, I see a reminder that we can accept one of two options. We can either be punished outside the city ourselves personally, or we can accept the person who was already punished outside the city for us. Amen? This is good news. If your parent came to you and said, hey, you deserve to be punished, you can take it, or I already took it for you. Which do you want? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly whoever said that. I already took it for you. That's the one I want. Jesus <coughs> already took it outside the city. He was already trampled, as it were, and his blood flowed outside the city. And so this is another reminder in the text that we don't have to suffer this punishment. 
Nobody does, because we have a choice. We are alive, and we can choose to accept the blood of Jesus on our behalf instead of taking it ourselves. How many of you want to accept that? I want to accept that. And you know, it's a choice that we make day by day. Not just a one-time decision. It's good to tell Jesus on a regular basis we want to accept what he's done for us. So how are we ready for the Lord to return? There are two harvests, a harvest of grain, God's people, and a harvest of grapes. Those who will not be going with Jesus. I want to keep it simple. Is that all right? <coughs> two things. Get with Jesus and stay with Jesus. Let me explain that a little bit. Jesus is going to be in heaven. Would you agree? He's not physically present on this earth, but he's here through the Holy Spirit. He's going to be in heaven. If we stick close to him, and he's going to heaven, and we don't leave him, and he doesn't leave us, where are we going to end up? <coughs> Excuse me. My dad was in London one time. He was meeting up with a cousin of mine. They were in a different cab, and he had to hop into a separate cab. He didn't have cell phones over there at that time, so he just had to tell his driver, follow that cab. Do whatever you can. Follow that cab. And you can imagine how, just in normal traffic, it's hard to follow another car sometimes. And sometimes you have to pull over and wait and, and all those things. But this is in London and traffic and uh, it was very, very difficult and it was a very scary ride in that car. It would have been much easier if they could have ridden in the same cab. If they'd gotten together and stayed together, it would have been so much easier and there would have been less chance of getting lost. If we want to be in heaven, we just got to get with Jesus and stay with him. Amen. I've said multiple times already in this series, if you've truly in your heart accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, today you are ready. And that's a decision that we are invited to make over and over again. But as we do that, we, we can be assured that we will be with Jesus in heaven someday. You know, the real issue for who's going to go to heaven is just this. Who will be happy there? If you're going to be truly happy in heaven, you'll be there. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times people think they'll be happy in heaven, but were they to go there, they'd realize they're not happy there. You know, I was reading in this great book, maybe you've heard of it, it's called Steps to Christ. Let me read you something, if I can. This is one of my favorite books. In his sinless state, man held joyful communion with God. But after sin, he could no longer find joy in holiness. And he sought to hide himself from the presence of God. Such is the condition of the unrenewed heart. It's not in harmony with God and finds no joy in communion with him. The sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from companionship of holy beings. 
Could he be, be permitted to enter heaven? It would have no joy for him. Why? Well, listen. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there, every heart responding to the heart of infinite love, would touch no answering chord in his soul. If you're a selfish person and you go to heaven and nobody's selfish, everybody is selfless, whoa, and you can't be selfish, you're not going to be happy. His thoughts, his interests, his motives would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. He would be a discordant note in the harmony, the melody of heaven. Heaven would be to him a place of torture. He would long to be hidden from God, from him who is its light, the center of its joy. It's no arbitrary decree on God that he excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. <coughs> These are some pretty powerful words. So the question is, are we going to be happy in heaven? If you love sin more than you love Jesus... Heaven won't be a place of happiness for you. If you love to serve yourself more than you love to serve others, you're going to find yourself out of place in heaven. If you don't want to spend time with God here and now, at least in our limited ability, you're not going to enjoy spending time with God for eternity, even in its complete and unveiled reality. So what do we do? What do we do if we're honest with ourselves and we say to ourselves, Self, I have some issues. I think I like this world a little too much. I think that there, there's just too much of me that just wants to continue on here and wouldn't be truly happy. You want to know what the author of Steps to Christ has to say in response to that question? It's a really good answer. And I'll let you read it for yourselves. Chapter 2. That's your, that's your homework. But let me give you a, a sneak preview. If you realize in your heart there's stuff that needs to be fixed and everybody should be thinking, yeah, that's true. The first answer is to tell Jesus that directly. Say, God, I want to be with you in heaven. But I realize at times there are parts of me that wants to be here on earth more. Please change me and make me new. Give me new desires. Help me to be born again. And that's a prayer you'll have to pray frequent. But I tell you what, when you get honest with God, things can start to happen in your life. I had a Bible study with a guy one time. He said, I used to love to smoke marijuana. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Uh, but he felt like God was calling him to, to stop. But it, there was only one problem, and the problem was that he just didn't want to. Right? I'd love to stop God, but I don't want to. So finally, just one day, he said, God, I love it. I love this more than I love the things you're offering me, but I realize that you have better things. And you know what God did? God took the desire away from him. It doesn't always happen immediately, 
but it can and does happen. And next week, we're going to start looking uh, at how we allow God to shape and change our desires. How do we let God change us? But for today, get with Jesus and stay with him. And get honest with him today. Let him know what your struggles are. Let him know you want to be changed. But I'm looking forward to his return. How about you? I want to be harvested in that first harvest of grain. How about you? So let's bow our heads and close out. Dear God, here we are saying, yes, we want to be with you. And we want to stay with you. Lord, there's a lot of craziness that will happen in the future before you return. But we know, ultimately, if we're with you, we can handle anything. Because you handled everything for us already. And you'll carry us through. Whether things go good or things go bad, we want to stick with you. And we're looking forward to that day when we can speak to you face to face. Change our hearts, make us more like you. In Jesus' name, let all God's saints say, Amen. 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 Have a happy Sabbath.